This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Everybody, welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're back here talking about films and the wonderful world of the cinema. Danielle, what's up? I, I'm doing all right this week. I have a question and I'm wondering if you have witnessed this yourself as someone who has like, you know, hung out with and cared for her nephews during the pandemic I don't think kids wait at bus stops anymore. Oh my God. Like, do they? Because I live in a small town, but every time, you know, I'm behind a school bus, these buses are stopping in front of houses and waiting for the kids to come out. Like the kids are not even ready in front of their own house. Like they literally are waiting for children to walk out of their house onto the bus like they ordered an Uber. I was literally just talking about this with my mom and dad because when I was in Florida a couple weeks ago, I don't think kids even ride the bus. Like, I feel like a lot of the times their parents drive them to and from school. Holy shit. This is blowing my fucking mind because when I'm watching these little kids get picked up by the bus, like specifically, I'm wondering, is it because too many kids were getting snatched? Like, what is going on? That has made such a major shift. Honestly, I think it's a fucking generational thing. I feel like when we were growing up, we were definitely second class citizens. They were like, we don't have time to do anything for you. You got to do it yourself. You got to use public transportation. Because I was telling this to my sister, like there's a picture like so um, my nephew's in first grade. And when he started first grade, Um, my mom found this picture of my sister. It was like a Polaroid photo of my sister in first grade waiting for the bus on the first day of school. And I'm like, she rode the bus in first grade. Now, technically, I was there. I mean, of course, I had to basically like tote her around everywhere. But she technically rode the bus. Like me and my sister rode the bus in elementary school. Okay. Yeah. And my nephew doesn't, ride the bus and and would never ride the bus like i asked my sister why don't you just because he goes to her school basically right. and so she drives him it's easy that makes but sense yeah i was like but you know would you ever let him ride the bus and she's like what i'm <sighs> like bitch you rode the bus you rode the bus when you were seven years old come on like not only that but like part of my disbelief is how like how terrible it was to stand out waiting for that fucking bus. Like we yeah. in the winter would stand out there in whatever outfit we had on, we had to put on the moon boots and the fucking jumpsuits or whatever, like the fucking <laughs> padded suits. And like we were out there like we were going to be outside all day because we had to wait for the bus for like 20 fucking minutes sometimes. And yeah. there were moments where because I lived in town, we would stand on the corner and then walk up the street 
to the vent at the back of the dry cleaner that was on the corner. Mm-hmm. And we would stand in front of the vent to get warm. Yeah, and I want to say, am I wrong about this? But like a large argument for us to keep daylight savings time is because of kids at a bus stop. Yep. Oh, yeah, because we'd be out there in pitch black darkness yeah. in the fucking winter. Well, then, this is, what, this is what I don't understand. Like, I feel like the bus has become, uh, like, a thing. Is it like a, it's dirty? Is it because um, you're freaked out by kidnappings? Like, you know, right. I feel like, the and, and I don't know, maybe it's simply because parents have more time, have more fucking time to do things for their kids like this, even though it doesn't seem that way. Cause I know so many stressed yeah. out parents that have no time, but I'm also like, how the fuck are kids not using the bus anymore? That seems it weird is to me. Truly blowing my mind because I don't understand. I don't understand why, like I'm with you where I'm just like, what, what cultural shift has happened in just one generation to make it that the bus is an impossibility. Meanwhile, it was a system that worked pretty well, I think for decades especially out in these woods and in these smaller towns yeah well and like okay i remember like being in high school now when you got to high school riding the bus sucked because oh, yeah a lot of your friends had cars and like no one wants to be stuck on the bus when you can get your hot neighbor to drive you to school or whatever completely but in middle school and especially elementary school it's like not an option that's the way oh. it was when we were growing up and it was his own social system. Like being on a bus in middle school kind of taught me about social hierarchies and a lot of bullshit. Yeah, there was so much going on on the bus. Like there was like, I remember like, <laughs> this is gonna age me a little bit, I hope not. But like, I remember in elementary school when the Dirty Dancing soundtrack came out. <laughs> I remember the entire bus, would, like on the bus ride to school and back, like everybody was were singing like, songs from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Oh like the entire God. bus full of kids were singing like, hey, Sylvia, yes, Mickey. It's like, <laughs> that's a distinct memory that I have. So I was like, yo, yes. kids are singing on the bus. I know you know this rumor about there was always somebody that got finger blasted on the bus. Always. And it was like a scandal. And we were like, what? Oh, the bus was kind of where I learned about most deviant behavior. Yes. Like, as you went further back in the bus, it became like Sodom and fucking Gomorrah back there. <laughs> kids were like smoking out of the emergency exit. Kids would always, I don't know why, but kids would always open the emergency exit and jump out of the back like when it was not their bus stop. Yeah. Like they were fleeing from school or like fleeing from the bus. That was, that ran rampant for a while. Kids were smoking, fucking yeah. finger blasting each other. Like, and then you got to the middle and it was like us nerds who were talking about our school day and like our dumb nerdy lives. Yeah. And then the front of the bus was just straight up like scared kids who were just like, I am not going anywhere near the back of that bus. It yeah. is fucking mayhem back there. Oh my God. I remember when, <laughs> when I was in elementary school, this is when we were living in Charleston or right outside of Charleston in South Carolina. Um, my sister and I were riding the bus to elementary school and she puked on the Aww. bus. And that bus driver was like, you better get up here and come get your sister because the puke is slowly rolling back yes. to the back of the bus. And everybody was like screaming, like, lift your feet up, lift your feet up. <laughs> and I was like, 
horrified and like i was like oh my god this is gonna be such a fucking stain on my year because (laughs) i'm the girl whose little sister puked on the bus and everybody's shoes are full of puke like that i just to think that like that kind of drama like doesn't exist in the kids lives these days is depressing to be honest it truly is and i think a lot of it is because kids are like so heavily scheduled that they are like well we can't put you on the bus because you have soccer after school so we have to come get you and take you to soccer because you won't get there on time if we just wait for the bus to take you. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I just, I learned so much. We had fucking boom boxes back there. It was like, oh my God, there was this one kid super into heavy metal. Long, (laughs) He would like do his hair on the bus. Like he had long feathered hair. And I'm like, oh, that's how hairspray works because I'm watching this motherfucker do his hair on the bus with the brush and the fucking (laughs) hair. I learned so much on the bus. Yeah. There was, I remember there was this uh, one bus driver. Our, like bus drivers, that's a whole other subject. I oh. could do an entire podcast about bus drivers. Dude, School we had a bus, bus driver drivers. named Chucky who was a vet. <laughs> and Chucky, he looked haunted as shit and had <laughs> no tolerance for children. Like yeah. the last person who should have been driving a bus was this dude. And he was just like, he he looked like large Marge where he just kind of had his hands on both sides of the big wheel. <laughs> yeah. Constantly yelling at us to shut the fuck up. Like he was, he'd had it before it even began. But yes, yeah. we could do a whole other conversation about bus drivers. Oh my God. So our bus, our neighborhood bus driver was a snooze, not going to lie. But then um, sometimes we'd have like that substitute bus driver that would come in when our bus driver was like out sick or whatever. And the sub bus driver's bus was so fucking cool (laughs) because she had garbage pail kids lining (gasps) the top of the bus. Like basically it was like, crown molding above the the windows and it was just the stickers the garbage pail kids stickers and i was like it's the garbage pail kids boss holy shit like this is gonna be the best day ever i absolutely love whoever that bus driver was she was on it (laughs) yeah she knew her audience and she played to the crowd yes and i loved you know what i loved about a substitute bus driver is when they would whiz past a fucking stop and everyone would be like stop the bus And the kid, whoever stopped that she like that they missed, the kid would be panicking. Like, oh my god, I've never been this far past my own home. Where the fuck are we going? Every single time we had a sub, they would miss a stop, and then that kid had to stay on the bus until the end, and they would loop back around and drop him off. But that kid was always crying and panicking, and I'm like, substitute bus drivers are the best because they're like, we don't give a fuck. We're just here for a day. Yeah, I remember being alive in the era before they put that like stick out in the front of the bus because don't you remember the whole drama of is that some bus driver ran over a kid because he wasn't far (laughs) he wasn't out far enough and then they started you know that thing they they started attaching these like i don't know like those like safety yeah at the front of the bus so like when the bus would stop this like huge arm would come out and you had to like walk around the arm so that they wouldn't smash you on accident when they drove away we didn't get the arm right away what we got instead (laughs) was another lesson which was get off the bus walk minimum 15 steps in front of it before you cross they're just like now you have to count like get off the bus and do math and we're like we just left school and they're like well if you don't want to get fucking run over you want to count them steps. 
I swear to God, some kid who had to count steps off of the bus is the one who invented the fucking Garmin track, like health tracker part of the iPhone. Like some motherfucker who's like, I've been counting steps my whole fucking life. <laughs> so I don't get smashed so don't by get my smashed. by my underpaid bus driver. I mean, the the patience you have to have to be involved in any kind of school, but particularly on the bus. People were never rowdier than when they left school. Oh, my God. It was like it, a bar full of middle schoolers. It was euphoric because it's like everybody hated school so much that the minute you left, it became like complete fucking anarchy. Like we lost control of all of our faculties. Like I remember there were certain times where people were like, a confrontation is going down mm. at, after we get off the bus at the bus stop. Like these two guys are going to fight or these two girls are going to slap each other. And we were like, Oh my fucking God, like rubbing our hands together. <laughs> like, Oh, I can't wait for this. I mean, it was like WWF shit. Uh, like it was so exciting. Is there anything more exciting than like half the, the entire bus going to one half to look out the windows? <laughs> As a fight starts and all you see is like someone's backpack getting grabbed and that kid getting dragged to the ground and you're like, oh, like it's on. Bitch, like there were times where I'm like, I'm getting off at this stop. I don't care if my house is like two miles away. It's like I'll turn to my friend and be like, this is your stop. Well, I'm getting off with you because I'm watching what like Craig and, you know, Brooke are going to do after they broke up today at school. And now they're going to fight at the bus stop or whatever. I was like, oh, I don't God. care if I have to walk home. Like I'm, I'm getting off at this stop. This is the event of the year. <laughs> yes. Well, and and I remember there was this one time, this is again in elementary school, where I actually got into a huge argument with this girl at the bus stop. <gasps> and it was over Jem and the holograms. I mean, <laughs> I think about this now and I'm like, I can't believe we got heated about cartoons when we were oh, that little was, kids. That was currency. That was yeah. supreme currency back in the day. Oh, yeah, because so me and this girl were discussing who in the holograms we were going to be that day at school. And I picked Kimber because I was always Kimber. I was like, I love Kimber. Like, she's my girl, like sassy redhead. That's my girl. And this this girl at the bus stop was like, no, like you are not Kimber today. I'm Kimber. And I'm like, how fucking dare you? Oh, she was asking for it. You're trying to upsert me? Like, I don't know who you're playing with. And I, like, essentially screamed in her face. And then she ran home. She ran home and missed the bus. Missed the bus. And then, like... Oh, this is in the morning? This is in the morning, girl. Damn. You ruined her day. (laughs) And here's here's the catch. So my mom saw her running home and was like... I forgot her name. I don't even remember her fucking name. Isn't that a shame? Uh, we got in such a heated argument, I forgot her name. And uh, my mom saw her and actually took her to school because she had missed the Aww. bus. And so when I got home, please believe my mom was like, oh, you're in trouble. Like you, this poor girl, you like could not let it go. No. Nope. And you couldn't let this girl be Kimber for one damn day. <laughs> and then I had to drive her ass to school. Like <laughs> your mom is, your mom is like, um, I know you've seen, I know my first name is Steve and we can't have kids just running loose in this neighborhood. <laughs> now I got to make sure this mo- little motherfucker doesn't get kidnapped and take her to school because my daughter bullied her out of being a gem in the holograms character. <laughs> and that's the thing. 
thing. If your parents had to drive you to school back in the day, they were fucking mad about it. <laughs> oh my God. That, isn't that so interesting from like the trajectory of that to right now where yes. parents are like, I, I can't think of a world where I don't drive my kid to school. Bitch, in our day, it was like, if your parent had to drive you to school, it was like the biggest ordeal ever. Oh, you were grounded. And it didn't even <laughs> matter if you're like, I need a ride to school because I had diarrhea in my pants. And they're like, well, you should have figured that out on the fucking bus. And you're like, what? How? I came home to change my pants. Not my problem. Walk to school. And you're like, what? <laughs> you're like, my day is planned. I'm going to fucking vacuum this living room. I'm going to watch. <laughs> Donahue. I ain't got time to take your little shitty ass to school. Donahue has the KKK on today. <laughs> I'm not missing that shit. Donahue's got the KKK and Al Sharpton on at the same time. <laughs> we got Jenny Jones at two o'clock. Montel Williams will be on soon. My whole day is planned. I ain't got time for this shit. You're going to have oh to walk God. with that load in your pants. Little, little, dar <laughs> little darling. Meanwhile, this winter, I saw at what I assume was a bus stop, someone had like a Suburban, like this big old van, and I was behind a bus, and when the bus came to the corner and put the little safety arm out, I'm not kidding when I say like eight kids piled out of this car. Yes. Like now yes. they sit in the warm car until the fucking bus comes. Yes. That's the other thing that I noticed too is that they don't walk to their homes. Mm -mm. Like, they don't walk to their homes, which are not that far from the bus stop a lot of times. They actually have somebody at the bus stop picking them up to drive them, what, like, 500 feet? feet? Like, yeah. it's not even that far. And I'm like, damn, these it kids It is fucking today. wild out there. And I'm like, look, too many kids got snatched, and now y'all are paranoid. And now these kids don't get to experience learning about hairspray on the bus or fighting with their friends. Or puking on those little tiles, <laughs> striated tiles. They're missing out on a lot as far as I'm concerned. But I just, yes. I can't believe it. It's been one generation. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, it feels like the school bus experience is its own ecosystem where we learned so much and dealt with so much. And it felt like, in a way, like that it kind of made us into the people in this yes. weird way. Cause well, we all, did. Yeah, because we were all experiencing the indignity of riding a fucking school bus and it just made us better in a, in a weird way. And I feel like, is that going to happen? Like, kids are not going to experience that anymore. They don't, no. they're not going to understand it. They're not going to be well equipped. Also, they don't have a place to blow off steam before or after school without a parent being pleasant present. Yes. And that is fucking crucial. You need to be on that bus talking to your fucking homies and being like, I can't believe Mr. Waleski assigned us the goddamn periodic table. Now I got to memorize this shit. Like, you need to fucking <laughs> like talk to your people about what's going on with your life without a parent being there. Dude, totally agree. Because from that point on, it's like you just show up to school, everything's supervised, lunch is supervised, like PE is supervised. It's like, well, where do you go like to fucking talk about crazy shit? Like, where are you yeah. throwing dice and uh, <laughs> like smoking cigarettes and doing all your like adult behaviors when your parents aren't around, right? Where am I, where am I teaching all the kids all the curse words I learned from my grandmother? Yes. <laughs> Because their grandmothers are like baking cookies and wearing shawls. And my grandmother is watching fucking aud audition <laughs> and cursing at the goddamn TV screen. 
How am I going to tell them all about Creep Show or fucking Tales from the Crypt? You can't do that shit in homeroom. You have to do it on the bus. Yeah, it needs to be out in the streets like most good things. And I feel like it's just not not happening anymore. And I'm so glad you brought this up because it was something that I've been thinking about for a while. They're not having these hard bus riding lives like we had. It's just, and it's the idea that they're so catered to, which again, I never experienced. But I think that's what's weird to me about it. And it's not even like good, bad or other. It's just very strange to me that an entire generation of kids is growing up being so supremely catered to from the time they're born. It's like, oh, we have to make sure you're okay at every step. And look, maybe it'll maybe it'll give us a bunch of like really well-adjusted fucking people who can actually turn this country from the shithole it is into something better. H- has yet to be seen. So I don't know. I don't yeah. know. But I think the, the bus is crucial to your development as a human being. And you need to be on a bus to understand every slice of life and what the world could actually look like. I couldn't agree more, Danielle. Couldn't agree more. And um, speaking of rides. Oh, shit. Good segue. (laughs) I didn't even think about that. Yeah, girl. I did it. I did it. I I did the segue. Oh, my God. We have a theme this week that is positively incredible. And this is something that Danielle came up with as per usual. She's coming up with all the good themes these days. I contribute fucking nothing to this podcast. <laughs> Not true. But I want I want to um I want you to announce the theme and I want you to explain it to people if you wouldn't mind. You got it. So our theme this week is brace yourself. And we're talking about movies that take you on a wild ride. And I think that when when I was thinking of this theme, I just rewatched my movie. I hadn't seen it in a while and I rewatched it. And I was like, wait, it's so bizarre to look at where this movie starts compared to where it ends. Like this movie totally. has taken us somewhere. And I just started thinking about all these movies that that did that or like all these directors who are able to do that. Like it's just some some people is just built into their style. And I just really think there's a lot of movies like this that are just like, oh, we have no idea where we're going, and this is fascinating. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I love, first of all, I don't know. I, I like all of our episodes, don't get me wrong. But this one, the films on this episode are some of my absolute favorites of all time. Um, I really dug into your film this week because I'm, I'm a dummy. I actually just got the criterion collection version of your film with all those extras it had been actually a little bit since i'd seen it and i just sunk my teeth into the world of your film and i was so excited and i i'm so glad to hear that now i had never seen your movie before and i could not believe that i'd never seen it because i loved it oh my god i'm so happy wait to get into it i absolutely loved it and it is it made me laugh so hard, and then it was, like, so dark. <laughs> like, it is, you truly never know from scene to scene what is going to happen in your movie, and I loved it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, between both of these films, I think it's, like, 
these films are right. I mean, it's like basically like you start the movie thinking it's going to be one thing and then it turns into something else and there's so many like twists and turns. And I mean, it's just compelling filmmaking. But at the end yeah. of the day, like, you know, obviously we're talking about two kind of famous 80s films, but like at the same time, like just the stories in and of themselves, um, you know, they're both kind of thrillers in a, in a way. Like, yeah. you know, they kind of veer off in other directions, obviously. But like, I like the fact that they're both thrillers. And I think... A lot of those movies t- tend to be these rides, these wild ride films, because there's just so much going on in them. But, um, oh, my God, I'm so excited about these films. I can't wait to talk about them. Let's get into it. Let's talk about your movie first. Oh, <laughs> M-G-Z. Okay, so my film for the theme, Brace Yourself, is a movie from 1988. It was written and directed by Steve DeJarnett, and it's called Miracle Mile. It was one of those strange nights. <gasps> Finally meet the right girl and you blow it. That could ruin your whole day. Oh God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get emotional. I have a feeling. Um, <laughs> this, this movie makes me very emotional, but. Um, just to get like a tiny bit of paperwork out of the way about the film itself. So Miracle Mall was one of these movies where the screenplay had been kicking around Hollywood for like a decade or something. And the director slash writer, Steve DeJarnett, he initially wrote it for Warner Brothers and he was right out of film school. And, you know, he wrote the screenplay because he was kind of obsessed with the idea of nuclear war, like everybody was in the 80s, right? And I also think, too, there was a generation of people who kind of come, who kind of came of age in the 80s that had also experienced Vietnam, right? Yep. Which he has talked about. There's actually this great, um, this great deep dive into the film on Uh, The Hollywood Reporter, where he sort of talks a little bit more about that, just about his kind of like persistent fears of like nuclear annihilation and all that stuff and war and violence and everything. So, you know, he writes this screenplay for the film and the studio came back and said they liked it, but they wanted it to be this kind of like big blockbuster film and they wanted to hire this well-known director for it. I mean, I don't really know who they had thought of. They just wanted to hire, they didn't want to take their chances on like a first time director, right? Right. And most importantly, they wanted to change the ending of the film, which I wouldn't dare reveal, obviously, especially oh. for this film. <laughs> but just so you know, it's a big deal that they wanted to change it. Okay. So, Man, that's, I can't even imagine this movie with a different ending, but okay. Yes. I agree. You know I agree. what I mean? But you know, you know what it's like as a screenwriter, like, you know, the, 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 the studio wants to change the entire thing and, you know, they want to make it, you know, palpable to what their tastes are. And you can't imagine it now after you've seen mm-hmm. the film, but you know, it's a big deal. Um, and, it was, it was a big deal to the director because he was like, I'm buying the script back. I don't want them to mess with it. So he bought the script back. He rewrote it. Then, you know, Warner Brothers came back in and said, hey, we really want to pay you a lot for it. And he was like, nope, I'm just going to turn them down and I'm going to make it myself. Right. So love it. That's a That's a good setup for a film like this, because. I mean, there's a lot to love about this movie for me. I, I like I said, I'm, I might get emotional. I hope I can do it justice. But first and foremost, I love the setting. So Miracle Mile is set in Los Angeles, obviously. And if you don't live in L.A. or you've never lived in L.A., 
So the term Miracle Mile refers to this stretch of Wilshire Boulevard, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And it's um, it just happens to be uh, where a lot of museums are located, including LACMA, which is the L.A. County Museum of Art, the Peterson Autumn Museum, which is that big, weird, wavy red building. Yeah. On the corner yeah. of Fairfax. I never knew what that was forever. I and I was like, either. that's a museum? Okay. I didn't either. I'm like, is that a bus stop? Like, what is what is happening here? Yeah, what is it a bus stop? <laughs> <laughs> Look, it could have been. It could have been. You never know what that city. Yeah, They'll be you like, never know. This is a bus stop. It is also has the largest pure gold Oscar statue. <laughs> You're like, that's what you put where you put your money. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. And so and, and that actually plays significantly into the film too. But like, yeah, th- that's the new Academy Museum, obviously. Mm-hmm. And then the La Brea Tarpis, which has a significant role in Miracle Mile, which I'll talk about in just a second. But you know, Danielle and I the both of us did not live too far from this area when we were living in LA. Yeah. And so for me, you know, I'm sure it was for you too, watching Miracle Mile is super fun because you get to see like the 80s versions of this neighborhood, like yes. the Johnny's Coffee Shop and Park La Brea and, you know, like I said, the Mako building, which is now the Academy Museum. And Johnny's, I don't know if, if you ever went in, when it was always closed. Like it said it was open, but yeah. it was never open when I went. Yeah. And it's kind of sad because it's like a cool building in a cool spot. Yeah, I, I feel like it was, they were just using it for film sets or something. I, I was hearing somebody told me that, but then it became the like Bernie Sanders campaign headquarters or yes! something. Remember, yes! like when we were there, I was like, why are these Bernie Sanders signs in the window? And I was like, oh, interesting. Because I got so psyched because I'm like, oh shit, it's actually open. And they're like, no, we're just here to stump for our man. Yeah, yeah. But it's, <laughs> it's an iconic building. Everybody, like if you're coming in from the airport or something, you'll probably see it if you're going down Fairfax. But you know, one of the other things that I love about this movie, too, is that the score was done by the band Tangerine Dream. Amazing. And they have, like, 7,000 albums at this point, I understand. But, f- like, for this film, they're, the music of Tangerine Dream really sets a tone for me. It's yes. very synthy and atmospheric, and it has this, like, slightly creepy vibe Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's really good music for like a sci-fi disaster film, right? It's just, it really Absolutely. is perfect. All right. A one sentence synopsis of Miracle Mile. A young jazz musician finally meets the girl of his dreams, but then is faced with the idea of losing her when he receives a phone call that changes his life forever. So honestly, Miracle Mile could fit into um, our all-in-one-night theme that we did a while back because it takes place basically all in one night in morning, right? Yes. And so the jazz musician that I spoke about earlier is named Harry Washello. And he is played by Anthony Edwards. The first person you think of when you think jazz musician. Oh, yes. But he also has this, like, and this is, I'm going to get into this about the principal actors of this film, Anthony Edwards and Mayor Winningham, they're so perfect in this film because they kind of represent like the kind of 80s rom-com characters that we all love. I mean, when you watch stuff like Something Wild and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like you kind of have the like buttoned up kind of straight lace Jimmy Stewart type. And then you have like kind of the punk cool looking girl. And I'm a huge fan of that dynamic. I think I've spoken about it. You know, I mean, maybe like younger people will see it as like a manic pixie dream girl thing. But back in the 80s, it was very much about class and 
you know, Wall Street and that kind of stuff, like, you know, kind of preppy people hanging out with like the downtown mm-hmm. after hours chicks. You know what I mean? And that's I feel like that's a part of this movie, but I'll get into yeah. that in just a second. So at the beginning of the film, Harry is taking a tour of the La Brea Tar Pits and he meets this young, cool girl named Julie Peters. She's played by Mayor Winningham, as I just mentioned. The very beginning of this movie is so cute. They spend oh. a lot of time together. Harry's smitten with Julie almost immediately. And uh, he does this narration at the beginning of the film where he's talking about her, about how she's hip and she's cool, but like she also is kind of old fashioned. Like she hangs out with her grandparents and gets this sort of like jazz references. And I, it just immediately, oh my God, it just makes me so crazy for the two of them i also love that like she she literally hangs out with her grandparents she brings her granddad to see him play in the park yeah and my favorite line in the movie comes from her grandfather who her her grandfather ivan peters who says hey can i buy you kids a tube steak (laughs) (laughs) like it's like buying the kids hot dogs and i'm like these are adult cool people and he's like can i buy you kids a tube steak and they're like yeah like they're totally into it it's adorable oh i love it yeah and the story with the grandparents kind of has its own thing too because essentially like so i guess her grandpa lives in park la brea which is this like you know cluster of apartment buildings that are in this neighborhood and then she lives in park la brea with her grandmother and apparently the grandmother and the grandfather haven't talked in like 15 years but they're still in love with each other and they've they're they haven't gotten together and so there's this you know this romance that's within the actual romance of harry and julie that is very sweet but um julie is a waitress at johnny's coffee shop like we talked about and one night she's got to work late and Harry's like, well, let's hang out after you get off work. And he agrees to meet her at like 1230 AM, like after she goes off work. Right. So Harry goes back to his room and basically wants to take a nap. And then he oversleeps basically. And the power went out. I guess the alarm clock fell out. And then he like basically gets up. I, this part of the movie kind of kills me for a very specific reason, but he gets up And he doesn't know what time it is immediately. And he starts like looking in the mirror, getting ready. And then he looks at the television set and the national anthem is playing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if people remember this, but like television was not 24 seven. Oh yeah. TV used to go off. (laughs) They're like, you've had enough TV. We are done for the day. (laughs) Right. But then also that the end of TV meant that the national anthem was played. Yeah. So, like, Russia will not beat us in terms of how many times we play the fucking national anthem per day. We have a system, and it's television, and you're going to get it. It's just such a weird concept to be like, what do we play at the end of TV so that people know the TV's going off? And, like, the national anthem, and we're going to show some, like, you know, fighter jets that the Blue Angels will be flying overhead. It's, like, so weird. They could have played, like, all along the watchtower. Like, they could have played anything. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I also love that the reason the power went out is because Harry was smoking a cigarette off of his balcony. Yeah. And he tossed it to the ground and a bird picked up the lit butt and put it in its nest (laughs) and caused a power outage when a fire started. He started a bird started a fire. And that is how everything in this movie kicks off. Honestly, it's like these city birds. Like when that bird in the film picks up the cigarette, I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck? How did this bird know how to do this? Is this like a 
stunt bird, a Hollywood <laughs> bird so that good. knows how to smoke. <laughs> I also love the part where he when he drives to Johnny's and he hits the palm tree in the front and all these rats just drop out of the tree. <laughs> oh my god. I have to I have to break in for a second. So I was recently <laughs> listening to our friend Shalewa Sharp's podcast. It's called The War Report. You definitely gotta check it out. Gotta but hear it. they were discussing this thing about rats living in palm trees and i was like what the fuck are you talking about oh, and then fuck the, yeah <laughs> i had no idea that rats lived in palm trees in la oh yeah oh yeah i knew that the minute i got there what because yeah my friend liz was like i'm like oh my god it's so pretty the palm trees and she's like yeah they're full of rats and i was like i'm <gasps> sorry what she's like yeah sometimes you can see like the babies dropping out of the fucking what? nest and like what? i'm like yeah oh yeah Okay. Rats are in LA. They're just like, there's no subway system for them to like cruise down, but they are all over the place. Oh my God. Look, my fa- look at my face right now. I'm like completely shocked by this news. Like I had never heard of this before in my life. And then listening to, Sh- <laughs> literally, it was like last week I was listening to Shalewa's podcast and they were like talking about these rats and these trees. And I'm like, what? I'm glad you didn't know because you would not have moved to LA. <laughs> Listen. You know that's true. I w- there was palm trees in front of my damn apartment building, and had I known that they were just like filled with, filled to the brim with little critters, mm-hmm. holy shit. Well, yeah, news to me. I just had to break in and say that. But um, here's the thing. So basically, Harry oversleeps, and then he wakes up and he realizes it's actually three forty-five a.m. So he fucking completely blew it, right? And Julie, of course, you know, it cuts to her. She's bummed. She's been stood up by Harry. And then she just decides to take a Valium and go to bed. Okay. So I guess Harry felt like he needed to go to Johnny's at that hour just to be like, maybe she's still hanging out, even though I'm like, (laughs) she ain't hanging out. After work, dude, she gets off at midnight. No. (laughs) Yeah. She's not waiting fucking three hours for your stupid ass. But, you know, whatever. So he, he goes back to Johnny's. And, um, you know, he goes in there and he starts asking her coworkers and like, hey, where's she at? And they're like, no, she's split. She's she's at home. So he he goes outside of the payphone of Johnny's and he tries to call her, but her machine picks up and then he hangs up the phone. And then all of a sudden in a call comes through on the payphone, like just an incoming call. Again, something that probably kids these days have no idea. Like they're like payphones. What? You pick up a public phone. People are calling a public phone, but it happens. Gross. yeah so yeah he picks up a phone the phone that he just used and it is this kid calling and he's immediately in this in the middle of a spiel and he's basically like freaked out and is saying like they're doing it it's happening prepare yourself nuclear war is going to happen in 50 minutes like you know they're dropping the bomb basically and you know Harry's like, this has to be a prank. But then he starts listening more and more, and the kid reveals that he's calling from North Dakota, and he's trying to get in touch with his dad. He realizes, the kid realizes that he dialed the wrong area code. So the same, seven numbers were the same, but, um, or the seven numbers were the same, but the he misdialed the area code because he's trying to get in touch with his dad in Orange County to tell him, by the way, like, this, the the big one's happening. And at some point, the kid realizes that his supervisors are listening to him, reveal this information, and then they fucking kill him on the phone. Yeah, Harry's listening shot. to yeah, everything. Harry's listening to everything, 
And then the the supervisors pick up and say, who is this? And then click, right? Yeah, like for, forget whatever you heard and just go to sleep. And I'm like, you know, that's probably not bad advice because I don't think a one hour head start is enough to outrun a nuclear <laughs> attack. But... No. Yeah, I definitely don't think so. I was like, and, and that is again, like part of what the tension of the film is set to is this ticking clock, right? Mm -hmm. After the phone call. So Harry is shook by this phone call and he goes into the coffee shop and of course everyone's like, bullshit, that's bullshit. Like LA is filled with bored actors who make prank calls at 4 a.m. You know, that's bullshit. (laughs) That's my favorite line. Like just the idea that actors were like, nothing else to do. I'm going to try out some character. Yeah, yeah. There's just like the and the, the cast of characters that are in the coffee shop at 4 a.m. are so great. It's like the so two funny. guys, you know, the two uh, workers that are like the construction workers, maybe. I don't know who they really are. Then there's like a flight attendant. There is an off-duty drag queen having coffee with like a businessman. And, you know, it's just kind of that kind of like cast of characters in a coffee shop. And so they're all just like, are you drunk? Like, come on, dude. What are the odds that this is actually true? But... Here's the thing. There's this woman that's sitting at the counter. Her name is Landa, and she's played by Denise Crosby, whom I knew as the the mom from Pet Cemetery, but she's yes. been in a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so this businesswoman, Landa, who's at the counter, she's got like her briefcase and her fucking mobile phone. It's like huge and uh it's like Zach Morris style. Has its own case. Has its own case. And she's like doing her business lady stuff. And she ends up getting on the phone with a bunch of like people, I guess in her field and finds out that the call is actually legit. Like basically she figures out somehow that like Harry's telling the truth. Right. Mm -hmm. Or, and we don't really know how she knows this. Like she said, she dated somebody that used to be on the, I don't know, the nuclear council or whatever she said, but you know, basically she sort of corroborates (laughs) Harry's story. Right. Uh, instead of everybody thinking he's full of shit. But, so basically, she kicks into, like, boss bitch mode. She's like, we're going to Antarctica. Get the coats. Get the gear. <laughs> like, we got we to gotta get on the top of the Mutual Benefit Life Building over on Wilshire. And there's going to be a chopper that's going to take us to the airport. And we're going to start a new world. We're going to repopulate the world in Antarctica. Right? It's so good. My favorite. <laughs> My favorite part of the scene is as everyone's starting to panic is listening to them list who should be on the helicopter. They're like, <laughs> all right, we got to call Dick Gregory and Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Joy's brother. <laughs> like, yes. It's such a weird mix of people. And then yeah. one of the characters is like, wait, do we even have all their phone numbers? Dude, I, this is the part of the movie that like is sort of fascinating and yet hilarious at the same time because so the manager of the coffee shop freddie who's played by the amazing actor robert doqui he's like fuck y'all i'm out of here and he's like shoots his gun in the air he hops over the counter and he starts like pulling canned goods out from the back and puts them in this like delivery van he's got a gun he's like we're ready he's like i'm ready to go i'm not taking this shit lightly at all yeah and you know who knows he's lived through some shit he's like i ain't fucking i knew this was gonna fucking happen fuck all y'all i'm out of here and so like a bunch of people from the restaurant get in his delivery van including harry and he's like we're headed to the airport i got no fucking time for you guys 
get all the canned goods you can, make a list including Joyce Brothers, which cracked me up. Make a list of all the people you want to save. Joyce Brothers, it's such an 80s moment. Oh my God, so 80s. And, you know, everyone is in complete fucking hysterics. I mean, they're just like, okay, so the, you know, like our worst fears are being, you know, this is our, this is our absolute worst fear. So Harry, of course, is sitting there going, well, I need to get Julie, right? And this kind of becomes this, this constant theme in the film too, is that people are always wanting to go back and get somebody, Mm -hmm. right? Which I feel like is a very, like, it makes me actually pretty emotional when I think about it because it's like, yeah, in this world, you know, you think about like nuclear destruction. And if you have a shot at, you know, making it like, who would you take, you yeah. know? And Harry is so um, smitten with Julie that he wants to bring her. Like, he's like, I got to go get her. So he literally jumps out of the van on the on-ramp to the freeway as everybody's barreling towards the airport okay and he's in the middle of the fucking freeway and then the next car he flags down is being driven by this young guy named wilson who is played by michael t williamson Mm -hmm. you might know him as bubba from forrest gump and a lot of other things but essentially harry young so so young he was in justified oh my god i love he's a great actor great actor and i mean I, i will talk about his acting chops in just a second but so Harry forces Wilson to drive into Park La Brea, where Julie lives, so, you know, basically they can try to escape together at the top of the Mutual Life building, right? Mutual Benefit Life building. And Wilson is suddenly like, well, I need to go get my sister, right? I'll meet you at the chopper. So Harry goes to get Julie. They get to the top of the building with a chopper. And there's already a bunch of people there, including this wild guy, Name Gersted, who was played by the great character actor Kurt Fuller. Oh, God. This motherfucker is completely unhinged from the jump. <laughs> Truly, like, he's, he seems almost reluctant to get on the chopper because he's so invested in complaining and shouting and being unhinged. <laughs> yeah. Like, Did he he's- just come up here to shout? <laughs> He's that guy that's going to, like, ruin his own interests by just bitching. Yeah. Like, he's just, he he lives to bitch. And that's what he's doing. He's like, oh, fucking Lando with this bitch. She's like, she's got me in one of these other, you know, like, not even thinking about, like, yo, this shit's popping off. And he's just like, he just wants to complain. And it's I also so love that he has looked like a middle-aged man since he was born. <laughs> Like, this exactly. is definitely one of his... He was younger in these films. And if you'll recognize him, if you look him up, you will totally recognize him. And he has yeah. looked the way he looks now for 50 fucking years. Yeah. Stre- <laughs> he looks like a stressed out middle-aged businessman. That's like Always. what his, his look is. But <laughs> So here's the thing. So Harry and Julie are at the top of the thing. There's a, there's a bunch of other people, including these like two women who have a shit ton of guns. I don't know. They just have a ton of weapons. I was kind of like, yo, that's kind of tight. Like, they figured out how to get all the weapons, these two they're women. They're like valley girls and they're like, um, let's go. <laughs> yes. But basically they figure out that, um, you know, there's no one to fly the fucking helicopter. And so this this becomes a part of the movie where Harry and Julie are kind of running around in the streets down below in the building 
um, to find somebody who can pilot a helicopter. Okay, so Harry goes to this gym. I have to mention this part because it is literally one of the funniest parts of the film. Where he goes to this like extremely 80s like workout place um, in the neighborhood and he's running around the gym and it's almost kind of like this weird tracking shot where they follow Harry through all these different layers of the gym and like this is one part with this woman who was in a tanning bed. She like pops out of the tanning bedroom and she's just completely nude like full bush it's like we were talking about a couple of weeks like last week we were talking about this we're like in the 80s there was always just a fully naked woman <laughs> yes there was just a woman in full with full bush full boobs like everything just popping out being like what <laughs> um and he's he's basically running around this gym with a gun being like who knows how to fly a helicopter and then <laughs> the best part is that there's this guy that's on one of them one of the like nautilus machines or something and he's this huge muscle-bound guy played by the amazing actor Brian Thompson. Oh my god. And all of a sudden he pipes in, he's like, Well, I can fly a helicopter, but it's gonna cost you. And then it's like, Harry's like, all right, fine, get up here, let's go. And then he wants to bring someone. Like even the guy at the gym who literally just found out about nuclear holocaust like two minutes ago is like, Well, I gotta bring my partner. Yeah. And he goes through the gym, finds his partner. And he comes in too. So it's kind of this thing where like everybody needs to bring somebody to the end of the world. Yeah. Oh. Which is, like I said, it's very sweet and makes me very emotional. But um, of course, so everybody's out on the street, cut cut to the street. It's panda fucking moaning. <laughs> it's instant mayhem. Like as people are waking up, they're just like panicked. Like what? Yes. It's like... Such a, And he even says this in the movie, but Harry is like Chicken Little. Like, he basically just started this story, and it took off like wildfire across the city. Oh, yeah. And so this, this is a part of the film that I think becomes very interesting in its own way, which is that, so they're out on the streets. It's chaos in L.A. Wilson finally makes it back with his sister. And they were, in the process of doing this, they were both shot by police, right? Which in and of itself, is a very heavy sentiment, right? Mm -hmm. And they're kind of trapped in this, like, I guess it's like a shopping center below the the building, like in the atrium of, like, the, the building. And so, you know, basically, Wilson is, and his sister, his sister has already died from the gunshots, and Wilson is kind of at the, you know, on the edge of the escalator trying to go up, and he's, you know, hurt very badly. And the scene between him and Harry is so emotional. And, you know, basically, like, Michael T. Williamson, like, he, like, it's almost like you're watching him do the scene in Forrest Gump when when he's in Vietnam. And you're like, man, this guy can fucking act. I mean, it's just such a good scene for him. And it's so dark. It takes such a, like, the movie takes such a turn right around this moment. And I think it's because of that. Like, he brings such an emotional heft to that scene. Totally. Ugh. Totally. And then this is the moment where you start wondering, is this call real? Was this call real? Because, you know, even Julie and Harry start to question it. Like, because you look at, like, what was set off, right, mm-hmm. by this simple phone call, like, this in this entire night. And all the roads lead back to Harry. I mean, he was the one that accepted the call. And so it's almost like, okay, here is now a casualty of this panic that he felt 
with this phone call. And if this shit isn't real, it has all these consequences now. Mm-hmm. And he's he's understanding that for the first time. So that part of the movie to me is very, I mean, it gets to be like almost like a morality question, right? Yeah. And a, a shockingly, like a very interesting metaphor for not just what was happening in America then, but also what has continued to happen, which is yeah. how one one utterance of a phrase could, especially back in that time, like send people spiraling. Yeah. And there was very, there were fewer ways to like fact check and people relied heavily on the news and kind of, you know, there just wasn't a way to really get the information you needed to prevent panic. And so we saw a lot of that in the 80s where it's like, oh my God, we're going to have a, like, there's a fire drill. It's a real fire. Like, there's just kind of the way that rumors carry this country forward for better and for worse. Yeah. And, And I have to say, too, like watching this film now in this era, right, you you begin to understand, I mean, this 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 film has almost like a timeless application if you think about it, because, I mean, come on, we just witnessed a very much, you know, worst case scenario, global disaster moment, right? Mm-hmm. And we saw the panic of it. We saw the hoarding of the canned goods and the toilet paper and like people convinced that it's not real. People who are hyper aware of the reality. And it's this whole thing where you're like, Wow. I don't know. To me, you know, I had seen this movie a while ago and then I saw it, you know, obviously recently for this episode and it just really hit me like how, you know, it kind of we've kind of experienced it in yeah. that way again. Um, and so here's the thing. The rest of the film is I just can't spoil it. I just can't oh. go down that road because it really is. The ending of this movie has haunted me ever since I first saw it. And to, and to me, it's one of the greatest surprise or, you know, unexpected endings in film yes. history. For me, I, I was shocked. Yes. <laughs> like, truly surprised. I did not know where this movie was going to go. And I was really surprised where it went. Yeah. And, I mean, that's really all we can say about it at this point. Yeah. Because it's just something you have to watch and process on your own. I just can't give it away. Um, but every, you know, the entire history of the film rides on this ending, too. So it's just su- super massively important um, to not give it away. But in terms of the film being a ride, I mean, start to finish, it's a ride. You just don't know wh- where you're headed. It seems like it's going to be kind of a quirky after hours-esque comedy at the beginning mm-hmm. with like the coffee shop stuff. But then it turns into this like, I mean, it turns into this kind of heavy film, like a almost, you know, political but emotional and i don't know it it just destroys me like this film destroys me in the best way possible and i have to end it with this thing that has just recently happened which is that so mayor winningham the lead actress in this film and anthony edwards they had actually met before they filmed this movie technically i think they met at an audition or something but then made this movie together, obviously, in the 80s. And they both went off and had their own families and their own lives. And, you know, they remained good friends. But then during COVID, they got back together and they actually eloped. I love it! And I swear to God, it's the sweetest, most romantic thing I've ever heard of in my life. Like, oh, my God. A love story, like, 40 fucking years in the making. <laughs> 
But I imagine, imagine having been in a film about a global disaster, right? Having mm-hmm. a connection to a person in that movie and then reuniting in an actual global disaster. Yes. Like, there's a moment, I'm not speaking for them, and I'm completely projecting my own (laughs) thoughts on on this real-life couple. But in a way, it felt, it almost felt like they had to be together. Like, I don't know, in my, in my mind, I'm like, they, they, this is their entire trajectory of these two people, like these two actors. And again, they're real people, they're, they're probably, you know, they're not listening, but I'm just saying if they were, uh, I am ascribing emotions to your relationship but it's that weird moment where you're like oh my god is that not the most crazy but also beautiful thing is that they are together and that they played out their own future it's just so weird and wonderful like that they they played acted and kind of brought to fruition a future that they didn't even know they were going to have yeah it's very sweet and they look so sweet together i can't i truly cannot with the story like i i it'll it'll make me cry like i'm getting emotional just thinking about it i'm just like god damn i mean that's just the sweetest ending you know i started watching we crashed and anthony edwards is in it and even though he is, he plays a fantastic role in that show, the entire, every single time he was on screen, I just kept thinking, he just married Mayor Whittingham. It's so cute. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, I was over the moon with this, for some reason, about this couple. <laughs> I know. Me too. Me too. I absolutely love this film, obviously. Um, I'm so happy to hear that you enjoyed it, Daniel, because I was like, I knew that I was like sci-fi-ish, you know, story, oh, yeah. a good bet. But um, what did you think? I absolutely loved it. It also, it really gave me like Night of the Comet vibes and Mm. like some of my other favorite like 80s apocalypse style films and, you know, or weird, you know, movies where, you know, someone is set off on a trajectory that they weren't expecting at the beginning of the day. Um, But I loved it. I just, I really, I liked that this movie is set in the 80s, but it doesn't feel like it's stuck in time. Like it feels still very it's so funny there are so many like just passing funny moments that they don't even hang on for more than a second that i was just laughing for minutes after they happened yeah and it's just such a wild it is a wild ride because it really does it takes you on a ride literally but it's a very emotionally shocking film yeah and i just really i'm so glad you picked it because i'd never seen it have you ever programmed it Oh, it just actually played at the TCM Film Festival. I oh my I, I programmed it there, and we actually had the director, Steve DeJarnett, there. He was talking about it um, <gasps> with one of our hosts. It's a great film, and everybody should check it out. Like I said, and I I don't want to be mysterious about the ending, but I, I really encourage people to watch the film just so they kind Absolutely. of know what's going on. But um, And it also, like, I'm kind of sad that I, I hadn't seen this before I lived in L.A. because... The movie, we all know how I feel about L.A. I don't have to get into it. The movie (laughs) makes the city seem like so much more fun than I actually experienced there. And I think, you know, yeah, like I hung out in Miracle Mile and I would go to museums and I love doing that stuff. But I think that it just kind of 
it it really telegraphs an energy of the city that I don't think exists there anymore. Um, but made LA seem like a very, very fun place to be. Yeah, definitely. Well, your film, man. Holy shit. Ooh. I can't wait. My pick for our theme of Brace Yourself was released in 1984. It was written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, and it is called Blood Simple. What I know about is Texas. Down here, you're on your own. Now, the Cohen brothers are legendary. There are countless podcasts and you know, people who have done deep, deep research. I guarantee there's been 17,000 theses, theses written about them. Um, the information is there if you want it. But since we've never really featured one of their movies on the show before, I want to talk about them a little bit and who they are as directors and writers and producers. Because mm-hmm. um, they have created some of the most iconic films. And this film, Blood Simple, is their first major movie. Um, this is also... <laughs> this is also the film where Francis McDormand met Joel Cohen and they got married. Ooh, yeah. And I... There's a, there's a clip. You should look it up. There's a clip of Francis McDormand talking about the beginning of their relationship and how... They would like read books to each other, and she her she basically ended it by saying like you should keep it across the room for as long as possible, like just kind of like do everything but have sex, like really get into the romance of this person you're interested in, and just keep it across the room. And I've always loved that. Holy so shit! Much. So God, much, and they've so they've good. been together since this fucking movie, like since 1984. <laughs> yeah. What I what I also love, and again, could talk about Frances McDormand singularly all day long. Oh my god. Um, she also plays the voice of God in, <laughs> which why hadn't she done that before? She plays the voice of God in the Good Omens TV show, um, and she's just so funny. She's so she's such an interesting actress to me because she's funny and she's smart. And she's dramatic and she's passionate and she is just incredible in everything she does. She's just really crafted herself as a very versatile actress. And I really love that about her. She's won um, an Academy Award, an Emmy Award. Um, I, and I don't think she's won a Tony, but she basically has kind of won like the triple, like the trifecta of of awards for every acting possible possible except for for theater yeah Um, oh my god she is she's about as close to like a role model maybe as i have you know i'm not i'm not i don't typically like worship people celebrities if you will but she is one like for me she just has this kind of naturalism and this like wisdom to her mm-hmm. that I love. And, you know, obviously sh- she shows up to award shows in like little to no makeup. I'm like, yes, bitch. Yes. Come through as we know. But then I don't know. She just w- listening to her talk. She just seems so interesting and fascinating. And she was on the cover of high times magazine. Hello. <laughs> we stand a ledge. So I just love her. Love, and I love seeing her in this film, too, as a young woman. 
Oh, completely. Little baby Frances McDormand is in here. And what I also really, really love about her, um, the more I kind of dug into the research for this film, is I, I didn't realize this, but she and all of her siblings were adopted. And mm. she and Joel went on to, when they decided to start their family while they were making Fargo, they adopted their son. Yeah. And I don't know why that just gets me right in the fucking heart where it's it's like, you know, she she grew up in a situation where she realized the value of her family, which doesn't mean they always got along or they were, you know, but she doesn't dislike her family. But she kind of just grew up in a way that she saw the value of being that kind of parent and taking a step like outside of her own heart to make her family. And I just I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah, me too. So sweet. So this film Again, rock star cast as always, and the Coen brothers have a, a, a they have a real knack of working with frequent collaborators, and I think that what makes them so interesting to me as filmmakers is that they strike this very cool tone between terror and comedy, and a way that neither one seems hokey. Yeah, so it's very dark tonally. Like a lot of their films are very dark. Um, but I think that the the brace yourself theme works for so many of their films because every film I've seen of theirs does not end anywhere near where it began. So I'm thinking of like Barton Fink and Raising Arizona and Miller's Crossing. No and Country for Old Men. Boxing, old yeah. country, no Country for Old Men. You know, Old Brother or Art Thou. Even like fucking Inside Lewin Davis. Like they just really make movies that are very sprawling but controlled and i just i love their tone and they are so funny like the comedy in this movie is so subtle it's as subtle as you know one of the main characters lives on a street that two people drive away from in a huff and they realize that it's like a dead-end street (laughs) so you see these two cars zoom down and then the actor's like oh i wonder when they're gonna realize that it's a dead-end street and the car (laughs) zooms back so their comedy is smart and interesting and just works with so many of these roles. But yeah, like they work with Francis McDormand is just one of the actors that they work with continually. Um, John Goodman, John Turturro, um, Steve Buscemi, uh, George Clooney. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, like Jeff Bridges and Scarlett Johansson, Tilda Swinton. Like they just really keep, they keep a really cool I hate to say stable, (laughs) but they do keep like a really cool stable of actors. And because they are so thoughtful and their films are always so different from each other, you get to see a really wide range of talent in what these actors can do because they're never playing the same part twice. Like they're they're not casting these people because they're able to play the same role over and over again. They really differentiate every single fucking time. And I just, I love it. So, yeah. So this movie is... Just one of my favorites. Again, it's their first big budget film. Um, and if you want to, I, I would absolutely look more into the Coen brothers if you haven't ever researched them. Or if you're looking for like, you know, oh, I was looking for a director to like really dig into all of their work. I feel like start with them. <laughs> like yeah. you will be surprised and entertained more than you could ever know. Yeah. Um, but this film, whoo, so good. I'm going to start with my one sentence synopsis. So my one sentence synopsis is a woman who is done with her marriage 
cheats on her husband, and creates a disastrous series of events. To say the least. To say the least. And the actors in this film, we've already mentioned Frances McDormand, who plays Abby. John Getz is the other principal player. Uh, He plays Ray, who's this guy who works for her husband. And she has a major crush on him. And the movie kind of starts with them deciding to have an affair. Like, he's yeah. like, yeah, I like you. And, you know, I, I work for your husband, but you're cool. And she is already like, I'm moving to Houston. I'm fucking out of here. The movie takes place in Texas. And she's like, I'm out of here. I don't want to do this anymore. And I like you. Yeah. <laughs> so her husband, uh, who's played by, again, legendary Dan Hedaya, who plays her husband, Julian Marty. Everyone calls him Marty. He kind of already knows that she's one foot out the door. Like, he, he suspects that she's cheating before she cheats. And as a result, he has kind of sicked this private detective on them, played by another legendary (laughs) fucking actor, M. Emmett Walsh, who plays this detective, um, Lauren Visser. And so he, like, Marty kind of is already like, eh, things don't seem cool with us. And I own this bar and I'm just going to hire this guy to sneak around. So he's kind of shocked when he discovers it's one of his his own employees that she's, that she's having an affair with. Um, and then she also kind of knows that he's vindictive enough. Like Marty is vindictive enough to like, to do that kind of thing. So she, she's kind of aware of that. And mm-hmm. as soon, even when she's driving with Ray, she sees this Volkswagen Beetle kind of following them. And she's really on edge. And he's like, what's going on? Like, do you know that guy? And she's like, no. But then as the movie kind of progresses, you realize oh, she's really brash and bold because mm-hmm. she kind of already knows she's being followed and does it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> like, that is how done she is with this marriage. <laughs> yeah. She kind of has like a femme fatale. I mean, I know a lot of uh, people um, talk about this as like a neo-noir film. And, you know, because of that, um, you know, I reference that femme fatale thing, but it, it is true. I mean, you know, basically she's got kind of She's got kind of a knowledge to her character that is very interesting, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and a re- like a knowledge in a real, like, self... I want to say self-protective yes. sort of instinct, because at this time, like, again, this movie was released in 1984, and, you know, back in this time, we're, like, five years out from when women could have credit cards without their husband or dad signing for them. Like, there wasn't really... We were kind of on the cusp of cultural changes that came on the heels of the second wave feminist movement. But she really does kind of set the the tone as that femme fatale who's already doing that without permission. Yes. Yes. And I really dig that. And I think so. So Visser basically follows them to this hotel and he takes these pictures of them. And then he goes back to Marty and he's like, yep, absolutely having an affair. And here's the proof. And Marty's kind of pissed because he's like, you know, you could have just told me. I didn't need to see the pictures of them in bed together. (laughs) Like, how long did you watch her? And I thought that was always, that's always been such an interesting line to me where he's, he's mad at her, but he's also still trying to protect her because he doesn't say like, you know, what did you see? He said, how long did you watch her? Yeah. And he kind of doesn't even care about Ray. He's kind of like, you know, that's my wife and you were watching my wife have sex and that's weird. Right. right. Um, And Visser's a real motherfucker. Like this character is, again, something that you will see pop up again and again in 
Coen Brothers films, but he's like really out of pocket from Jump. Like He's like, yeah, whatever. Like I took these pictures and what are you going to fucking do about it? And the thing about Visser is that like he has this, he's just like a very, if it wasn't in the hands of the Coen Brothers, he would feel very much like a central casting kind of yeah. character. But so like he's got this, Zippo lighter with his name engraved on it and like very identifiable lighter. Um, And he really just kind of like makes fun of his clients for needing his help. (laughs) So he's just like one of those kind of fucking guys. I know it's the quirky psycho sets the tone for a lot of uh, movies of theirs. uh, After completely. And again, thinking instantly of John Goodman and Barton Fink, like so many, so many. Um, So he's pissed and, that you know, and also he's kind of like, well, I don't know what to do, but I have to run this fucking bar <laughs> tonight. So, one of the other characters in the film that is a, a small player, a minor part, but is so great, is Maurice, and he's played by Sam Art Williams. And Maurice is another bartender at the bar. He works with Ray, and they both work for Marty. And Maurice is so fucking funny. So Maurice keeps putting on. Like his kind of pump up personal pump up jam is the same old song from the Four Tops, and th- when you first meet Maurice, he puts it on and he's got his like white sweatpants tucked into his white high top Converse, <laughs> and he's walking down. He pops it in the jukebox, and this is like a real like Texas bar, and he yeah. puts on this fucking black group. And then he hops on the bar and does a little two-step before he goes back to work. (laughs) It is so good. Like, that says so much about that character to me and his, like, fearlessness and his, again, his own sense of comedy. And he's just such a funny, funny character. Um, Yeah. I love Maurice. I love Maurice. Yeah, I I love his, his sort of primary motivation of the film is, like, he just wants to clock out and, like, hang out and live his life. But yeah. then he gets kind of wrapped up with these other motherfuckers in the bar. And it's just like, come on people. Like, you know, exactly. it's almost like he's pissed at it, that their drama is a distraction for him and his goal of just being off the clock and hanging out and listening to music and hanging out with women and drinking. And hanging and stuff, out with so. women. Oh, he's yeah. so funny. Like there's again, another really funny line is when you first meet Maurice and then Marty's like, Hey, get back to work down the bar there. Because Maurice has been talking to this woman, at Deborah, and Marty tries to hit on Deborah, and she's like, "What the fuck? Like, why are you in my business? I've known him for ten years. We've been friends forever." And then when Maurice comes back, he's like, "So, what's your last name again?" <laughs> I know, so, such such a great scene when he says that. I love that. I love that scene so much. So we've got kind of most of our major players are have been activated at this point, and what really happens to set this ride off. The first thing is those photos that kind of put Marty in a specific state of mind. But then Abby decides, I'm really done. I'm going to go home and get a few things, including my gun, my very distinctive gun. That was a gift from Marty. And I'm going to stay with Ray for a little bit while I figure this out. And she's already, again, what's very, very cool about this character, she's not like, jumping from man to man like we're gonna be together forever she's kind of like you know yeah i want out of my marriage and i like you but i'm still gonna get my own apartment yeah and we'll just see what happens but more than anything i just need to get away from this dude um and she does eventually get this incredibly cool apartment (laughs) i'm like so (laughs) jealous of even now um so abby goes and gets her gun and then ray goes back to the bar 
And they have, he has this really interesting standoff with Marty. And Ray again, Ray is played by John Getz, who is just a fucking legend. A lot of you will know him as Gus from Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. Yeah. um, Or The Fly. Yep. Or Curly Sue. Like, he's been making movies since 1975. Yeah. And he, his last his last acting role was um, recently was in the doom patrol. Like he's, he's in his seventies. He's still going and he's still great. I think that he hit a, he hit a moment in the kind of late eighties to mid nineties where he was playing these really comical kind of um, like bad guy characters. But then you see him in a film like this and you're like, Holy fuck though. That dude can act. <laughs> like he really got typecast for a minute and I'm glad he pulled himself out of that. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, obviously we've talked about him. We we covered both Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead and The Fly. Mm-hmm. And in that in that era, like, you know, he was almost kind of like the business asshole. Like, he's he was always the, like, corporate businessy asshole guy. And yep. so when you, when you go back and you watch him in Blood Simple, you're like, oh, he's so great in this film because he's, he kind of is that, like, Texas guy. Like, he's just mm-hmm. this very, you know, plain dude that like lives in texas and he's got this i don't even know where he's from is he from he he can't be from the south maybe i don't know but he's he has a perfect accent and a perfect southern demeanor and that is his acting because he actually was born and raised in fucking iowa there you go there great actor yeah he's such a good actor and he he's got this real like smooth swagger to him in this film there's um a scene where you know again after abby goes and gets her gun and she's he's like well you can stay at my house and she does she goes back with him for that evening um and the next day the next morning marty has kind of broken into the house and tries to like snatch her and to abby's credit she gets away from him by like breaking his finger and then kicking him in the dick (laughs) <laughs> and then Ray comes out of the house, though, and he kind of just, like, is fearless. Like, he's just, like, walking towards Marty, like, yeah, what are you going to fucking do? Like, there's nothing you can do about this, and your violence is not warranted here. He says nothing, and he just looks at him, and again, just really reminded me of what a great actor John Getz is, because he just does all of this with a movement and a look, and really telegraphs, like, don't fuck with us. Like, don't fuck with me especially, but don't fuck with us. Yeah, Dan Hedaya in this film is fucking terrifying. Oh like, my god! And I'm not just talking about the the photograph that they show multiple times where he's um, it's like a shot of him and Abby in like happier days, and it's a black mm-hmm. and white photo, and they're both like by the pool, and Dan Hedaya is the most hirsute man <laughs> I think I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> he really is. He really is, and truly, like again, growing up, I always. I kind of met Dan Hedaya as an actor, as like a dad character. Yes. And so he didn't have that edge. Like, he was always frantic. He was always like the dad on the verge of having a heart attack in most of his roles. <laughs> yeah. But in this film, he's got this, again, this quiet, steely terror. Yeah. And it's very different. Very different. I also love the fact that there are two actors in this film, Dan Hedaya and Francis McDormand, who have deeply cleft chins. I don't think we get enough chin acting. Yes. I'm very into the character. <laughs> Representation on screen always. Got to rep those chins. <laughs> so basically, 
Ray kind of goes to Marty. He's like, am I fired? Are you going to hit me or what? And Marty's like stewing, but you know he's not going to do anything. Um, but then he breaks in and kind of like, you know, tries to drag her out. He realizes this is not going to go the way I want it to go. So he hires Visser again um, in a very funny scene where he walks, he has to walk through this like, par- this park where kids are parking their cars and just like hanging out and drinking and smoking. And they're all roasting him as he walks <sighs> to Visser's car. It is so funny. And he basically says to Visser, like, go ahead and kill them and I'll pay you. And Visser's like, all right, you should leave town, go on a fishing trip, and I'll take care of it. And that's kind of what happens. He he leaves town, he comes back, and Visser shows him a picture of them laying in bed with what appear to be gunshot wounds or blood stains. And Marty gives him 10,000 bucks. But what you, but what Marty doesn't know, but we know as a viewer, is that he didn't actually kill them. He snuck into the house. He stole Abby's gun. And then he went outside and took a photo of them through very weirdly a bedroom with a huge window. <laughs> so he took... A lot of sexy living in midair windows in this one. A lot of sexy living in midair on the ground fucking floor. Yeah, like everyone exactly. can see everything in this neighborhood. There is Dude, no hiding. Crazy. And so he takes this photo, which is creepy enough that he's taking this photo of them through the window and you're not sure why. But then when you see this photo, you realize, oh, he's doctored the pictures to make it look like he killed them. But what he actually does instead is he shoots Marty. Because he's like, why the fuck would I kill both of them? I could just get the money and kill you. And then no no one's any the wiser. So Visser shoots Marty in his office in the bar and then just takes the money and runs. And again, he's such a dirtbag piece of shit character, <laughs> but he had a plan. And we're starting to see now that like Visser is, has a plan of his own. Yes. Um, so when Ray comes back to the bar, because you know he kind of wants to get his last paycheck and Marty won't give it to him, he finds the body. And he also, by kicking it across the floor, accidentally finds... Abby's gun, which Visser has used to kill Marty. So he sees this very distinctive gun and he's like, holy shit, she fucking killed her husband. And does the kind of most heroic, but most ridiculous move for, it's a ridiculous move for himself, but it's heroic in the sense of this relationship and this woman that he loves. And he starts to clean up. And in his mind, he's thinking, Abby killed this dude And I don't want anyone to find out. I want us to have our life together. So he starts to clean up the mess, which means mopping up the blood and also taking the body away. So he puts the body in his car. And as he's driving it out to the wilds of Texas, he hears breathing in the backseat because Marty is still alive. And what follows is one of the most harrowing scenes I have ever seen on film. Yeah. As he has to decide, what the fuck am I going to do? This guy is still alive. And if he lives through this, he's going to prosecute Abby. Because yeah. again, in Ray's mind, he's like, he knows nothing of Visser. Right. So he's like, my my lady killed this dude or attempted to kill this dude. And he's yeah. so vindictive that he would absolutely do what he could to put her away for life. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, listen, this part to me is so crucial to the film because, I mean, obviously you have the Ray character who is fully in his like double indemnity, like Fred McMurray moment where he's like, you know, I'm trying to help out this woman that I love and I have to like, you know, get rid of this body because, you know, she killed him and I, and I got to, you know, save her basically. Mm -hmm. But then the idea that he is not fully dead is always going to present itself as being like a big question mark for the rest of the film. Right. Because you're basically like, well then, who killed whom? And then, like, c- could Marty be alive and, you know, be a part of this, too, technically? Mm-hmm. So it just adds that extra layer of um, stress <laughs> to yes. the film that um, makes this film so good to me, you know? Oh, absolutely. And this scene carries on for a few minutes. So yeah. you're watching... For a few minutes in what feels like real time, Ray wrestling with his own decision about this. Yep. And so, yeah, like I agree with you. It's totally, it's very stressful. It's very tense, but it's also a really curious scene. Yeah. Because we don't know that much about Ray. We just know that he's like, you know, a guy who works at a bar who loves his lady. Yeah. And he really plays this kind of like innocent fear about what he thinks he has to do. Mm-hmm. And then I don't want to ruin the movie too much, but what he ends up doing ends up being like a very monumental decision. So he makes this decision about Marty. And then he goes to Abby's new apartment and is like, I know what you did. Right. And it's okay because you did it for us, but I know what you did. And she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? She has no clue. Right. And he's not really even coming right out and saying it, but she's like, you know, Marty just called. He's alive and, you know, whatever. And he's like, I know what you did and I fixed it for you because I love you. Right. So she's now curious. She's like, what the fuck? So she goes back to the bar office around the same time that Visser realizes his lighter is missing. So Visser goes back to the office Abby goes back to the office. And this is a real part of the movie where all hell breaks loose. And I don't want to ruin too much because the ride gets wild from here. There's a really cool scene where she's in the bar in the office. And she's kind of realizing because she's seeing the scene of the crime that something untoward has happened here. Yeah. And you see her kind of fall back and she falls into bed and is in her apartment suddenly. Yes. And if you've seen Sherlock season two, episode one with the woman, that's where this scene came from. Like they basically replicated, like like ripped yeah. off this scene because it is such a fucking cool scene. And it's very blue toned and the hues are very cool. And she's sweaty because it's like fucking Texas in the summertime. Yeah. And it's just a very wicked scene as you realize what she real- what she realizes and how she kind of can't handle or process this information. So yeah. now she's realizing also what Ray thinks she did. Yeah. And it's like, again, the wheels are off from this point and I don't want to ruin it, but this movie takes you on such a fucking ride from the beginning. I think that the characters are so subtle and interesting and the fact that they're able to ramp up the story of this film just through acting and just through their kind of subtle moves of it, it just really 
it always it's always interesting to me to watch. There's always a time in my year or in my life where I feel like, yeah, Blood Simple's always good. It's always good. I always find something interesting or new or different every time I watch it. And it is, from a storytelling perspective, just so informative to me in terms of how you craft a story and how you can really write characters who feel so realistic, but are in such an absurd situation. Yeah, totally. I mean, I cannot stress how incredible this movie is for first-time filmmakers. I mean, they had not Mm -hmm. made a movie before this. And it's just that thing where you're like, I mean, can you imagine your first movie being something as good as Blood Simple? I mean, honestly, it's just... It's crafted in this way that's so unique and wonderful. And it's just like the blueprint for their entire world. I mean, the the Coen brothers have this entire universe to them. And it's, you know, this movie sets the table for all that. I mean, the scene that you talked about where she fall, it's almost like she's in the bar looking at the fish on the table and then she falls back into her pillow. I mean... That has been ripped off so many damn times Mm -hmm. in film and TV. I mean, they had their like, you know, weird kind of like evil dead running with the camera moment in the yard, you know? I mean, it was just sort of like, they were using a lot of like cool film techniques that people have been using ever since this movie came out. And I also think too, it's this perfect balance of it being like, it's just appropriately quirky enough. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like considering first time filmmakers writing a script, young guys, it could have been real over the top, you know, because of mm-hmm. their, they're just green. They just want to make a movie. But the fact that it's so restrained and it, 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 there's a lot of information that's just being communicated through people's faces and like how all these people, Frances McDormand was like 24 when she made this movie. Right. Yes. And, um, there's just like young, talented people that know how to like, you know, lay back and sit in, into the film as opposed to just giving it all away. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's to their credit as directors that they would hire, not only that they would hire such fantastic actors, but then they would trust them to do the work without being overwrought. You know, a lot of directors kind of want to nitpick and control every moment of what you see on screen. And they don't do that. They kind of, they're not necessarily ad-libbers, but they really let the actors kind of embrace the role enough yeah. to show you what they want you to see. Yeah, and and just, you know, speaking on the Coen brothers, I mean, it, you know, you hear a lot about their influences and you know that they're influenced by old noir films, you know that they're influenced by Preston Sturgis, the, you know, uh, the director and writer who was like a classic Hollywood, made a lot of screwball comedies. And that to me is like a really interesting intersection for me is to think about like, oh, so here are like, directors that love the noir they love the darkness of the noir and the characters of noir but then they also love kind of screwball comedies that tend to be farces that tend to have a lot of moving parts and so that's what i think blood simple is really like that perfect intersection of a noir and a screwball because it's like you have quirky characters you have the lorne character who is you know, got a uh, bespoke Zippo with his name on it. Like, you know, he's this like crazy Texas buffoon, but he's a psycho. And then you have like, you know, all these other characters in the film, but then you, it's tense and it's restrained and it's, it's dark and mysterious. So I just, 
I, that's why I love this movie. And they came out of the gate like that. Like that. That's like what you were saying is just, like this is they were bold enough to make their first film be one that has such a signature and such a personality that they couldn't totally. be denied. Like they're not doing what everyone else was doing and they weren't interested in doing what everyone else was doing. And by promote, but by actually presenting the film in the way that they thought it should be made, they yeah. created a new genre. Totally. And that from the first movie. And that is something that is unbelievable to me that it's not something that, developed over time because what we've seen instead over time is that they've have this genre that they've created and they fucked with it so every film they do is going to be different from the last film they did yeah and it's just i fuck i just absolutely love and you know i'm not always a fan of saying this about dudes but i really do appreciate (laughs) them in this landscape because i think they've been doing this for like over 40 years now yeah and they're just so fresh and interesting and smart yeah and they continually astonish me and i feel like like i said every single one of their movies is some kind of brace yourself wild ride yes i, t- I to- totally agree and to your earlier point about <laughs> you know on this podcast we're, we're never one to like completely like worship the canon if you will the mm-hmm. film the film person canon but I feel like this is an exception. I feel like the Coen brothers and their films are like just as good as you've heard about. If you've never seen them or if you're not yes. familiar with their world, they're just as good as as people have gushed about. Like they're it, it's awesome. And like like I'm so glad you picked this film again because it really like got me into like really studying it finally. And I had before, but it was I don't know, I just I, I just was like fell into the hole with the film, watched all of the uh, extras on the DVD and all the commentaries and all the YouTube clips I could. And I mean, this movie is a, a fucking ride from start to finish. And I think it's interesting too, that, you know, both of our movies this week are, th- are basically thrillers, but there's quirkiness to them. Yes. Like there's a comedy to both these films, but they're also like very tense mm-hmm. and dark. And, that's that was unexpected. I think I didn't I didn't think that we we came to the table with the notion that that would happen. Exactly. No, because yeah. Exa- yeah, like you said, there's so many movies you could pick for this theme, and we just so happened to pick movies that were both '80s movies that had this really dark streak in them. Yeah. Um, and were really unique. And I just yeah, I I love that. I think they are so believe the hype. They are like you said, they are one of those pairings. Um, as directors, as producers, as writers, believe the fucking hype. They are very, very good at what they do. And I th- start with this one and then just watch them all. Um, yeah. The Miller's Crossing release on Criterion is beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's just Raising Arizona. I cannot believe we haven't talked about it on this podcast yet. It is one of my top five all- all-time favorite movies. Oh, God. We'll get there. Trust me. I would. I haven't seen that in a while. I would love to watch that again for this podcast. But Amazing. I... Honestly, like I said, I don't want to pick my faves, but I got to tell you, both <laughs> these movies this week really, really got me. I'm so happy we got to do this. In fact, I actually love ride film theme. I think we should do it again. Oh, totally. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, so do you want to tell them what's going on next week? <laughs> oh, yeah, baby. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. So for 
next week's episode, we are going to watch the films Frailty from 2001 and The Stepfather from 1987. I'm sure some of you will be able to guess the theme. Um, And if you listen early on Wondery Plus and the Wondery app, don't tell anyone else what it is. Yes. (laughs) But it's going to be a doozy. All I'm saying right now is that I've never seen your film. (gasps) It's from the 2000s. So I have a feeling. Oh, you know already. I need to brace myself for that. (laughs) I know that that's our theme this week, but I got to brace myself for next week, too, I'm sure. It is also the theme of every movie I suggest from the 2000s that you haven't seen. (laughs) Well, listen, if if you want to talk with us about film, um, please send us bonus um, episode questions. Um, We read a lot. Oh, my God. We just did a bonus episode, honestly, that was like one of the funnest bonus episodes that we've ever had. And I cannot stop laughing about it. We love reading letters there. Please send us like anything, movie experiences, watching films with your family, and it's very awkward, you know, working in the theater, working in a video store, um, anything you got, please do so at I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. And if you have a lot of those experiences, just narrow it down. You can send us more than one email. Just like send us a couple for now and then keep yes. your other ones for later. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but we also have a P.O. box if you want to just send us like handwritten letters or cash. Uh, you can find us. <laughs> uh, like, are we legally allowed to say that? I don't know. <laughs> Make sure you wrap it up in some in some stuff. I don't want anybody stealing it. Put it in one of those long gift cards that like your grandma used to give you. <laughs> like those old CD cover boxes yeah those Those long long envelopes yeah (laughs) but you can also find us on our social media if you just want to say hi you don't have to send us cash uh we are at i saw pod on instagram and twitter yeah we actually do have facebook as well and people have like i said i think i said in a previous episode people are like congregating on facebook and i'm letting y'all do that just just hang out like hang out there if you're on facebook still i don't know Um, oh yeah yeah. And don't forget to review us. Like, you can hang out on Facebook, hang out on our social media. But what really helps the show is if you go to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a five-star review. Yeah. And, you know, maybe tell a few friends to also leave a review. Yes, exactly. And, hey, if you want merch, please get that shit at the Exactly Right shop on exactlyrightmedia.com. Well, look, Danielle... I never have to brace myself when I'm on this ride with you. It is always Aww. enjoyable. I love it. I agree. This was great. I just, I really love making this podcast with you still. 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 After all these years. <laughs> After 20 fucking years of this podcast, I still <laughs> love it. <laughs> I love that too. Well, listen, everybody, have have a good week. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. This has been an Exactly Right production, produced and mixed by Casey O'Brien. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogle, artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod, and you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.